of the circulatory system, we have mainly three functions. Transportation, regulation, and protection. The blood contains cells and fluid. And as part of these components, they, uh, we can identify many different chemical substances that some of them are nutrients, some others are waste products of the metabolism, some others are gases that are obtained from the respiratory system, oxygen, and also carbon dioxide, which is eliminated at the, uh, the lungs. And all that is contained in the blood and is circulating all over. That's transportation function. And also hormones, we study the endocrine system, the hormones are transported in the blood. So the blood is basically transportation, one of the functions that it has. Regulation, hormones, temperature, and protection, immunity, and clotting or coagulation. Specialized cells in the blood are going to give us this uh, protection ability in terms of infections, microorganism damage, or bleeding, excessive bleeding, uh, which uh, it is stopped by coagulation mechanism. So heart, blood vessels, and the blood. And part of the circulatory system is also described uh, at the end lymphatic system, but it's more related with the immune system, because the lymphatic system is a system uh, composed by some organs and a system of vessels, small vessels that are going to carry a different fluid called the lymph. But it's related with the blood, because at some point the lymph from this lymphatic system will drain into the blood, into the, the venous circulation, the veins and it will get into the, uh, back to the blood. So let's start with the blood in more detail. There are two types of blood that we can recognize and that difference is based on the content of oxygen. And that way we identify some blood that is oxygenated, is rich in oxygen, and some blood will be deoxygenated because it's poor in contents of oxygen. If we try to find the places where this blood is, we can see that the arterial blood, oxygenated blood, is blood that leaves the heart. It's bright red, if we see it. And venous blood this blood that gets into the heart. It's dark red, it's deoxygenated, but we'll see that there are some exceptions in the places, like some blood vessels, they carry oxygenated or deoxygenated blood. And the composition of the blood can be summarized in percentages, as we see at the bottom, 45% cells, that's what we call formed elements, and 55% uh, 
plasma. That percentage is expressed in percentage of volume of the blood. The blood is one of the body fluids that we use a lot to perform different types of tests, chemical tests especially, but not only. Uh, we usually get blood samples, like in a tube, like we see here. And first thing we do in the lab before testing it is what well, we need to know what we are testing the blood for. But we basically separate the components of the blood. Put a tube in a centrifuge, and this machine spins the tube at high speed, and that separates the components. All the cells or formed elements will get to the bottom of the tube, and all the fluid part will remain in the top part. And this is the way that we see a blood sample which is centrifuge. Blood plasma clearly see the fluid part here and the dark red part which is uh, the place where all the cells are. What cells we're talking about? There are three types of cells. Red blood cells, which are the most, white blood cells, and small cells called platelets, which we will see that are actually cells, they are pieces of cells, but they work mostly as cells. So what's in the plasma? The plasma, the top part of the tube. Here we find all the chemical substances that we've been talking about, like oxygen, carbon dioxide, like uh, hormones, nutrients, waste products, all that is contained in the plasma. But also an important component, plasma proteins. Important because they have very, very crucial functions like albumin. Albumin is responsible of the osmotic pressure. Globulins, which are divided in alpha, beta, and gamma globulins. Alpha, beta globulins are basically related with transport of lipids and, and, uh, and vitamins. And the gamma globulins are Proteins that are called antibodies, which are part of the immune system, and they neutralize neutralize um, uh, the microorganisms. Fibrinogen is another plasma protein that helps in blood coagulation. We'll see what is the importance of the fibrinogen in the coagulation process. So let's start with the formed elements of the blood. A description of these cells. First type of cell is a red blood cell, which is the most in number. 
some features are described here. In shape, they are discs that look biconcave. They are the ones that carry oxygen. That's the main function. It's the most important function of the red blood cells. I would say one of the unique function of the red blood cell. Carry oxygen. They don't have nuclei, nor mitochondria. How is that possible? Well, the nucleus allows cell division, so there's no cell division. The red blood cells don't divide, then don't, don't uh, go into mitosis. They don't have mitochondria. Mitochondria are important for production of ATPs. If these cells don't have mitochondria, they are not able to make ATPs by aerobic respiration, but they do by anaerobic respiration. So they just do glycolysis. Few amounts of ATP, that's all they need. They don't need more. Five million per cubic millimeter of blood. And since they have the nucleus, they don't divide, they have a limited lifespan, which is 120 days about. All the components after that time are recycled by the liver, spleen, and carried to the red bone marrow, which is the place where all these cells are made in the red bone marrow. A condition related with the red blood cells is anemia, which is the deficiency of hemoglobin or deficiency of red blood cells. Hemoglobin is that protein that they have inside, and that's the protein that carries oxygen. Leukocytes, or white blood cells, they do have nucleus, they do have mitochondria, so the function is different. White blood cells, they are able to move and get out of the blood, go through the blood vessel walls and get into the different tissues. They move like amoebas. In number, they are much less. Red blood cells are in the order of five million. Here we see 5,000, 9,000. And there are two big types of leukocytes. Some of them are granular and some others are agranular. This division relies on the presence of granules in the cytoplasm. Under the microscope, we see granules in neutrophils, eosinophils, and basophils. And agranular are two monocytes and lymphocytes. We don't see, under the light microscope, we don't see the presence of granules. And those granules are inclusions of the cytoplasm, are vesicles containing enzymes that are related with the different functions of these cells. This diagram is showing us the different types of cells that we find in the blood. Red blood cells, also known as erythrocytes. Erythros meaning red. Platelets, which are the very small cells. 
And all these five are white blood cells. There are five different types of white blood cells. You see, they're different size. Some of them are really large, like the monocytes. Some are very small, like the lymphocytes. These three up here are granulocytes, granuloleukocytes. You can see the granules in the cytoplasm, different type. These are red granules, these are dark granules, these are few granules. And they are named as neutrophils, eosinophils, and basically each of these cells they have different function. And all of them are or have the capacity of going through the blood vessel wall and get into the tissues to perform the different functions. Platelets, also known as thrombocytes. Prefix thrombus means uh, clot, so it's related with the coagulation or clotting of the blood. Very small cells, actually, they're not typical cells, they're fragments of cells small pieces of a bigger cell called megakaryocyte. The megakaryocyte is found in the red bone marrow and it splits in many different pieces and all those pieces are released to the blood. That's what the platelets are. They don't have nucleus either. Short life, about five to nine days. And they get together and form a clot whenever this mechanism of coagulation is activated. We've been mentioning the red bone marrow. That is the place where these cells are formed. Red bone marrow is found in the bones especially flat bones, and also in the epiphysis of long bones. And that process of blood cell formation is called hemopoiesis or hematopoiesis. How this happens? There is a stem cell here called hematopoietic stem cell. which is the origin of all these blood cells. This happens in the red bone marrow. But also some part of this process for some of these cells happens in what we call lymphoid tissue. We'll see what this lymphoid tissue is when we get to the lymphatic system. An example is a lymph node. Lymph nodes, spleen, so these blood cells are formed in the bone marrow first, and some of them in the lymphoid tissue. And as they get um, developed, differentiate, they will develop receptors in the membrane that will respond to different signals, and depending on the type of cell that they become. Let's describe some of these processes, like the one related with the red blood cells is known as erythropoiesis. Look at this number. 2.5 million of red blood cells are made in the red bone marrow every second. Imagine, count the number of bones that you have, flat bones, the ribs, sternum, clavicle, the pelvic bone, and plus the epiphysis of your long bones. 
all this tissue producing and making red blood cells, about 2.5 million per second are made every single, I mean, every single second. This process is finally regulated by a hormone known as erythropoietin or EPO, which is made in the kidneys. And it's basically made when the oxygen levels in the blood are low. Homeostasis again. If your oxygen levels in the blood are low, means that you need more oxygen. So therefore, the kidneys will make EPO, and that EPO will get to the red bone marrow in order to make more red blood cells so you can maximize the transport of the few oxygen that you have in the blood. This is the same thing that happens when someone gets to high altitude, a high altitude place. There's less oxygen, EPO is made, and your red bone marrow starts making more red blood cells. And with the time, you maximize the transport of the low level of oxygen that you have. But that takes time. That takes at least three weeks. And the red blood cells, they have iron inside. The red blood cell has hemoglobin, which is abbreviated as HB, which is a protein that contains iron. So when the red blood cells are made, they need, they need iron. Where's the iron taken from? Well, from all red blood cells. After 120 days, they are recycled, the iron that contained in them, it is reused, sent to the bone marrow for new red blood cells. And also from the diet, iron in the diet. But we have enough storage of iron in our body. We are supposed to. If you don't have enough stores of iron, then is when you develop anemia. We normally, regularly, we don't need additional supplements of iron if our diet is a good diet and our stores of iron are fine. But if we don't have a good diet, we may be deficient in the stores of iron. We'd be at risk of getting anemia. Anemia is very commonly found. Yes. Is that why you see a lot of the You don't see what, sorry? You don't see iron as an element in multivitamins. You see the label at the back, they take it out. Yeah, it depends. It depends. As I said, if your diet is good in iron, you don't need any supplements. And you don't need any supplements, uh, like in multivitamin preparations, the, the, the amount of iron that they have actually, the ones I have, that have some iron, is just not significant. And it's just a waste practically. Uh, and if you, knew, if you have enough iron, it's not, you just eliminate that iron. Anemia is very commonly found, for instance, in um, teenage girls. It's a population at risk for anemia for two reasons. First is the time of the first menstrual period, and menstruation is considered hemorrhage, actually, loss of blood. And it 
usually at that time, it's uh, these girls don't have a proper diet. Don't have breakfast, they eat just snacks and fries. And especially this type of diet will put at risk for anemia. So the red blood cells formation, the process of formation is summarized here. Everything that starts from stem cell, which is also known as hemocytoblast, and that stem cells, after many processes and steps, which happen in the bone marrow, they will be released into the blood as erythrocytes. So all this part happens in the red bone marrow. At the end, they are released as erythrocytes mature red blood cells. Something happens during the development because you see this stem cell and the steps after, they have nucleus. But here, at this point, the nucleus is removed from the cell. The normal blast will turn into reticulocyte without a nucleus. And from here, it turns into erythrocytes and is released to the situation. We see the EPO here stimulating all these processes that happens in the bone there. One thing related with red blood cells is the presence of antigens on the surface of the red blood cell. And that is in relation with the blood type. The blood type. Well, every cell, every cell has proteins in the membrane and antigens. The definition of antigen is actually any, any molecule or part of a molecule that is able to start an immune reaction. That's what the antigen is. We call it an antigen to these proteins found on the surface of the red blood cell because they are able to stimulate or initiate an immune reaction. They are actually proteins on the membrane. And antibodies, definition of antibody, is a plasma protein which is made by lymphocytes. And they are made in response, in response to any foreign cell or foreign molecule. Following that, if a protein found in the surface of the red blood cell considered an antigen, is infused into the blood of someone else, that antigen will start an immune reaction in that person. And the immune reaction involves the production of antibodies in that person, which are going to fight, neutralize the foreign protein or foreign cells. That's what happens during transfusions, or that's what may happen during a transfusion of blood. That's the reason we have to match the blood type. 
So we give the correct type of blood to the correct person. Because if we give a different type of blood, a different type of antigen that the person would not recognize, then an immune reaction will be started. So these red blood cell antigens are called the ABO system. Antigens on the erythrocyte cell surface. And we divide and we classify the people that have different types of blood according to this. Type A blood means that the red blood cells have the antigen A on the surface. In the same way, blood type B, a red blood cells containing the B antigen, there are two more types. Some people have blood type AB, that means that those red blood cells have both antigens A and B. And there are a fourth type, which is called type zero, or O, because it has neither A nor B, no antigens A, no antigen B on the surface of the red blood cell. So we have those four different types of blood that we find in different people. Here we have another table showing that type of antigen found in the red blood cell, A, B, O, or A, B. This is the genotype. And antigen, these antigens are present in the red blood cell, you know, on the surface of the red blood cell. That person will have also antibodies in the plasma, natural antibodies, which are usually against an opposite type. Meaning, if someone is blood type A, if someone has this blood type A, we will find antibodies in the plasma. But these antibodies will be anti-B, not anti-A, otherwise it will react to itself. In the same way, that someone who is B will have antibodies against A. What happens with O, A, and B? Well, type O people, will have antibodies against A and against B. Finally, these people with blood type AB, they will have neither A or B antibodies. And we, saw the we see that representation in the graph here, the different types of blood, the antigens in different colors, Oh, it doesn't have those antigens. Different. And here the types of antibodies, color-coded. This A has anti-B, which are in blue. AB has none. And blood group O has both types of antibodies in the plasma. That's what we find naturally in every person with all these types of blood. And that is the basis of blood typing, blood matching for transfusions. That's summarized in this description. That's the reason why, in order to prevent a transfusion or reaction, someone needed blood, if someone needs blood, that person has to receive the correct type. If the person receives the wrong type, 
Well, antibodies will bind to the erythrocytes, and those cells will be first all agglutinated, we mean all clumped together, and then destroyed. And that's what an, a transfusional reaction is. For instance, if you have type A blood, and you receive type B blood, if you are A, that means you have antibodies against B. You're not supposed to receive blood type B because those cells that are given to you are going to be rejected, are going to be destroyed by your antibodies. You have antibodies, anti-B. And that's an, a transfusional reaction. You suppose, if you are A, you're supposed to receive blood type A. So you won't have that reaction. That's the ABO system. The other system is known as the RH factor, or antigen D, which is another protein on the surface of the red blood cell. That's the reason why when we describe the blood type, we usually say, a, for instance, A positive, or B positive, or O positive. The complete description should be type O, RH positive, or type O, RH negative. So the sign is related to the presence or absence of the RH factor. If we say RH positive, that person has the antigen D on the surface of the red blood cell. If we say RH negative, that person does not have the antigen. One difference with the ABO system is that we don't have, we naturally, we don't have antibodies against D in our blood. We don't have it unless we are exposed to this RH factor before. And that can happen, that can happen during a blood transfusion or during pregnancy because at some moments during the pregnancy, especially at birth, there will be contact, physical contact between the blood, the mother's blood and the baby's blood. And in that moment, if you are Rh negative, and if your baby is Rh positive, then your, your blood is being exposed to the Rh positive, to the Rh factor. And you may develop antibodies at that point. And that creates a different condition, which is usually present in the during pregnancy. Um, in mothers who are Rh negative, and if they have a baby who is Rh positive. There are ways to prevent that, medications to prevent the formation of antibodies if you are Rh negative and have a baby which are, uh, who is Rh positive and prevent things that can be serious. It used to happen before, but not now nowadays. Questions to this point? Coagulation of the blood. Coagulation refers to the process by which bleeding is stopped, also known as hemostasis. Hemostasis. And we bleed when one of the blood vessels is damaged. When the blood vessel is damaged, one thing happens. 
blood vessel has an inner lining known as endothelium, which is a simple um, epithelium, one layer of cells. And under that, underneath that layer of cells, there is a basement membrane or basal lamina, which is made of collagen fiber. So when it's damaged, if there's a damage to the blood vessel wall, the blood and the collagen fibers of the basal lamina will be in contact to each other. And that will trigger a series of reactions, which is known as blood clotting or coagulation mechanism. There are three main steps in the blood coagulation process. First, vasoconstriction, which is contraction of the smooth muscle cells of the blood vessel wall. Second, the formation of the platelet plug here with the plate is common plate. And third, there will be a formation of a protein web made of fibrin. First thing that happens when a blood vessel is injured is vasoconstriction. We see that all the time when we try to put an IV, we get a needle and go through the skin looking for a vein, usually in the upper limb, and the needle, and we don't get the vein, but we barely touch the vein with the needle. Well, the vein will contract, contract will constrict. Second attempt in the same place will be harder. We say, oh, the vein is hiding now. It's hiding because you just touched the vein, we made minimal damage to the wall, and vasoconstriction follows. Well, if you are successful to make a hole in the vein to get the blood, then yeah, you, you're damaging the blood vessel wall. And when you remove the needle, there is a hole in the blood vessel wall. What's gonna happen? Well, the blood is going to be exposed to the collagen fibers, and that will trigger this reaction. Platelets. Platelets will come to the place. There's a series of chemical factors that are released at that point, and those chemicals call platelets, chemotaxis. Platelets will arrive and will make a plug. Will make a plug and will stop the bleeding temporarily. Third step. This is the first, second, and third step. The platelets will get activated. We call activation of platelets. And they are going to recall, they're going to call this plasma protein that we mentioned before, fibrinogen. <coughs> fibrinogen, which is in the circulating in the plasma. And the fibrinogen, fibrinogen is going to turn into fibrin, which is like a mesh. It's going to precipitate and will make this plug permanent. That's what we know as blood clot. That will take some time. That will take some time, like five minutes, seven minutes, for a stable, stable clot to form. This clot, made of platelets, just platelets, that happens first, is unstable. It has to follow by, be followed by the fibrin deposit, or 
fibrinogen deposit there, so that clot remains stable and stop the bleeding effectively. So that's the sequence of events. Platelets bind to the collagen under the endothelium of the blood vessel. Then there is a series of factors that are activated, like this factor called von Willebrand factor, which attracts the platelets and keep the platelet together there. Now the platelets will recruit more platelets. Remember we mentioned this as an example of positive feedback. Platelets are right to the place, release chemicals, and those chemicals bring more platelets. More platelets meaning more release of chemicals. Could be more platelets. And the factors that work at this point, they are secreted by the platelets, are ADP, which make this platelet sticky. Serotonin, that stimulates vasoconstriction, further vasoconstriction of the blood vessel. And thromboxane A, which is a prostaglandin, that stimulates the platelets to get stickier and further vasoconstriction also. Now those platelets, when they are activated, they will activate plasma clotting factors. Those are known as coagulation factors or clotting factors. Which in the third step, as we saw, will make the fibrinogen be converted to fibrin. And here in this picture, we see all the red blood cells and platelets trapped in that mesh made of fibrin. That's what the clot is. Because once this fibrin gets in place, or even red blood cells will get trapped there. It will make this clot more stable and more permanent. Well, there are two ways that the fibrin can be formed or fibrinogen turn into fibrin. These two pathways are known as intrinsic and extrinsic. Depending on the, how they are activated, how these factors are activated. The factors are proteins in the plasma that are activated in a sequential way. It's a cascade of reactions or chemical reactions. We'll see in the next graph how these pathways are depicted. Two big circles. The blue is the extrinsic pathway and, and the yellow is the intrinsic pathway. If you notice, these arrows of activation goes to a common pathway, which ends with the fibrinogen turning into a fiber. This is the final step after the activation of all these coagulation factors or clotting factors. You see Roman numerals. We use Roman numerals for all these coagulation factors. It's not a sequence that goes from one to two, three, and so. It is completely different, not, not sequential, because for instance here, in the intrinsic pathway, the 12, factor 12, activates factor 11, and the 11 activates factor nine, factor 9 activates factor 10. So there's not a sequential numerical sequence. It's just the number responds to how they were discovered and described 
and then after they found out how they react to, uh, to each other. How these pathways are activated, different mechanisms. Intrinsic pathway, when the collagen is exposed to the blood. And extrinsic pathway is the presence of a factor or chemical containing some tissues. Now this is many different ways that these uh, pathways may be activated. There are different types of damage to the blood vessels and even conditions that will activate this, these factors. For instance, people that have problems of thrombosis to the veins, out of nothing, they form clots in the veins of the legs. And tissue factor, extrinsic pathway, is activated in that way. Not necessarily, there's not necessarily a damage of the blood vessel. But the thing that we should remember and most important thing here is that at the end of all these pathways, the fibrinogen turns into fibrin, and the fibrin is the one that makes this clot more permanent. And once a clot is formed, it has to stop. Otherwise, if we think about this in positive feedback terms, we may say, okay, the keeps more plates, more plates, more plates, fiber, and the clot keeps growing. There's a moment at which the clot has to stop. And that's when negative feedback will come. But a different mechanism triggers here. It's a plasmid activation. It's a different protein, which is going to dissolve the fibrin or digest the fibrin. And that's how the clot formation is stopped. Only the clot that is big enough to stop the bleeding and then it stops. And the plasmid will start digesting the, the extra fibrin. There are some medications that are used to prevent clot formation. Heparin, coumadin, they work in different mechanisms. Heparin, for instance, blocks this factor called thrombin. Where is the thrombin? The thrombin is right here. Look at this. In the common pathway, we see thrombin. So if we have medication, a drug that blocks that step, there won't be clot formation. There won't be fibrin formation. And that's how it's used, heparin, to prevent clot formation, especially in people that have tendency to form clots or some special conditions. Coumadin, it's a different one because it works at the level of vitamin K. It inhibits vitamin K. What the vitamin K has to do with this? Some of these factors, some of these factors, like the factor seven, like the factor um, uh, nine, they are made in the liver. Vitamin K is needed for that process. And so if someone has a problem of blood form or clotting formation, we give coumadin, we're going to prevent the formation of those factors in the liver and no clots will be formed. And that also brings the question, if someone with deficiency of vitamin K will have problems of coagulation? The answer is yes. One of the problems of deficiency of vitamin K is uh, abnormal bleeding. They're not able to stop the bleeding 
as a normal person would do. Questions to this point? Okay, those, those, those were aspects, different aspects of the blood. And uh, now let's, got, let's get into the um, study of the heart. Starting with the structure of the heart. If you did anatomy, you know this very well. But anyway, we're gonna review a little bit of this. Like the heart has four chambers. Four chambers in the heart, right atrium, left atrium, <clears throat> right ventricle and left ventricle. Two atria, two ventricles, two sides, left and right. The blood will get into these chambers and follow a sequence. And that has to do with the type of blood and the type of connections that these chambers have. The right atrium is the one that gets deoxygenated blood, blood with no oxygen or poor in oxygen, but it's coming back from the body, from the different parts of the body. And it gets into the right atrium. From the right atrium, we have the right ventricle. The blood is here in the right atrium. It will flow into the right ventricle. From the right ventricle, the blood is sent to the lungs for oxygenation. This is deoxygenated blood. And that's what is described here. The right ventricle pumps deoxygenated blood to the lungs. The lungs will get oxygen to the blood and now the blood is oxygenated and it will return to the heart. The left atrium will receive that oxygenated blood from the lungs. And that's what we see here. The left atrium receiving blood from the lungs. Now the blood is in the left atrium oxygenated blood flows to the left ventricle and from the left ventricle the blood goes into the aorta and all the blood vessels arteries left ventricle pumps oxygenated blood to the body that is a little bit of the structure of the heart and the circulation of the blood through the chambers of the heart and the lungs As mentioned before, we say that the myocardium of the atria is not the same myocardium of the ventricle. They are separated by a connective tissue uh, wall. And that's known as the fibrous skeleton. The atria work as one unit, and the ventricles work as a separate unit. That fibrous skeleton determines the area where heart valves are. The heart valves are mechanisms by which the chambers will send blood 
forward and would not allow the blood to flow backwards. And also the ventricles send the blood to the blood vessels and these valves will not allow the blood to flow back. Now these connections of the heart with the blood vessels that we call the large blood vessels of the heart, they can be separated in two systems of two circuits, pulmonary circulation and systemic circulation. Pulmonary is between the heart and the lungs. The blood goes to the lungs through the pulmonary arteries, and the blood returns to the heart through the pulmonary veins. Systemic circulation is between the heart and the body, tissues of the body. The blood is pumped to body tissues through the aorta. And it returns to the heart through the superior and inferior vena cava to the right atrium. In the graph, we can see this much better. The arrows are showing you the flow of blood through the heart. If we start at any point, let's say right here in the field of Vena Cava, and all this blood will get to the right atrium as well as blood coming from the superior vena cava, coming from the top part of the body. From the right atrium, the blood will flow to the right ventricle. From the right ventricle, and the color coding, blue is for deoxygenated blood, red for oxygenated blood. From the right ventricle, the blood goes through the pulmonary arteries, going to both lungs. What happens in the lungs? Oxygen is obtained and diffused to the blood. Now the blood has to return to the heart, and it does through the pulmonary veins, now showing the red color because they bring oxygenated blood. Left atrium is where the blood gets, and then to the left ventricle and then from the left ventricle to the aorta to the rest of the tissues top part and bottom part of the body pulmonary circulation heart and lungs systemic circulation heart and the rest of the body now more about the valves heart valves are mechanisms by which the blood flows only forward and not backwards. There are two types of valves. The first type are called AV valves, standing for atrioventricular. They are found in between the atria and the ventricles, and there's one each side. The one in the right side is called tricuspid, between the right atrium and right ventricle. Bicuspid or mitral between the left atrium 
because these valves are very thin membranes, very thin membranes that will close this connection between the atrium and ventricles temporarily. But these fine thin membranes, they are supported by fibers called corditendinae, which are attached to muscles called papillary muscles connected to the wall of the ventricle. And that controls the movement of these thin membranes or valves. Semilunar valves are located, are two, they are located first, the pulmonary semilunar between the right ventricle and the pulmonary trunk. And the aortic semilunar between the left ventricle and the aorta. Purpose is the same. Send the blood forward and not allow uh, the, the flow, backflow of the blood. And these valves are the basics or the explanation of the heart sounds. Whenever the valves close, it's because the blood tries to return or flow back, but the valves will contain it. And the blood hitting the valves and the valves closing, that's what makes the sound. The first sound is the closure of the AV valves. And the second sound of the heart is the closure of the semilunar valves. We listen to these sounds with a stethoscope there are four places where we have to put our stethoscope in order to listen to these heart sounds. And specifically, we listen to the sounds of each of the valves. If we place our stethoscope, for instance, in the fifth intercostal space, we will listen to the sound made by the bicuspid valve. Or if we place our stethoscope second intercostal space, right border of the sternum, we will listen to the sound of the aortic semilunar valve. Listening of heart sounds required training to identify the different pitches of the sounds and uh, recognize different type of conditions that may happen. And one of the sounds that we look for in the examination are called murmurs, a hard murmur. It's abnormal sound, and it's made by the abnormal flow of blood through the heart. Usually, when the, one of the valves is defective in some way, if the valve is not closing properly, if the valve is uh, not opening in enough diameter, then that makes turbulence of the blood, and that turbulence is heard as a murmur. Like one of the most common types is called mitral stenosis, where the mitral valve, these membranes, these thin membranes, gets calcified. Gets calcified, and the term stenosis means stricture, narrowing. You see how narrow it gets. And the blood flows from the left atrium to the right, uh, left ventricle, but the opening is very small. 
and that makes turbulence, and that makes a noise. And that's called a hard murmur when we listen to the stethoscope. And we are able to listen to that if we place our stethoscope in the fifth intercostal space. There's another problem called incompetent valves. When they do not close properly, when it comes a moment to prevent backflow of blood, then the valve will not close completely. It will remain open a little bit. And some blood will flow back through the valve. And that's also detected by the stethoscope. One of the problems that we see here is called mitral valve prolapse. That makes or um, is a cause of regurgitation. Regurgitation is a term that we use to describe the blood going back from the ventricle to the atrium. It's not supposed to go in that direction, it's supposed to go forward. But if the valve is not closing properly, some blood will leak back to the atrium. And that's called regurgitation. The condition is called mitral valve prolapse. Well, it means that the membranes are supposed to close in this way horizontal and close completely. They go back and flap, like, like flip-flap from one side to the other. And also murmurs can be listened when there are septal defects. Septal defects are actually holes in the interventricular area There's supposed to be a wall that separates the right ventricle and the left ventricle completely. But during the fetal stage and fetal circulation, there is some communication here at some point. But this is supposed to be closed completely after birth. Sometimes it's not closed completely and it remains. And some blood flows from the left ventricle to the right ventricle. So all of them, all these conditions can be heard as heart murmurs and listened with a stethoscope. Now let's get more into the physiology of the contractions of the heart and how the heart contracts to move the blood across the chambers and finally towards the blood vessels. When the heart contracts, it goes through a series of events and steps that correlates with the moments where the blood gets into these chambers. If we start at some point, let's say, let's say the ventricles, the ventricles will start contracting. When the ventricles start contracting, the pressure inside, the blood inside, the pressure inside will rise. And that make the AV valves Close. that we see here. These ventricles are starting to contract and start squeezing the blood inside and that will make these valves close. So no blood will return to the atrium. No blood will remain in the ventricle. That's the first. And that's called isovolumetric contraction. Why? Because the, con the ventricle contracts and the volume of blood is the same. This happens. This lasts some fractions of seconds. But then, but the, the ventricle keeps contracting, as we see here, and the pressure builds up, rises even more, and that forces the semilunar valves to 
open. So this arrow here, going through the semilunar valve, the blood has to flow forward. And that pressure increasing here will open this semilunar valve, connection between the left ventricle and the aorta. And in the right side, between the right ventricle and the left front. So the blood will flow. The blood will flow after the semilunar valves open. Then what happens? When the blood from the ventricle is ejected or sent to the arteries, and the ventricles get emptied, and the pressure will fall. Then, since there is blood in the atria still waiting, Low because these valves are closed. Now the pressure here decreases and these valves will open. You see here the isovolumetric relaxation first. And now we see the AV valves open. That blood in the atrium that has been waiting there because these valves were closed, now the pressure in the ventricle will fall even more and they will open and the blood will flow from the atrium to the ventricle. And the ventricles will fill up with blood again. And that stage is called rapid filling of blood. And this happens in both sides, right side and left side. There's a little bit of delay in, times of, in terms of milliseconds, but both things happen in the same way. And then finally, the ventricles are filling up with blood, and when the blood is filling the ventricle, the atria will contract a little bit to send even a little bit more of blood through the AV bone. And that's a stage of atrial contraction. So we have described all these movements, and now they describe this in, uh, in terms of uh, two things, contraction and relaxation of the heart muscle. Well, actually, the, this is what we call the cardiac cycle, the systole plus diastole, which are terms that mean systole for contraction and diastole for relaxation. So this pattern that repeats every time, contraction of the heart, relaxation of the heart, systole, diastole, that's what we call the cardiac cycle. And some other terms that are used to understand this process are the end diastolic volume, which if we read the, the, the term, is the volume of blood that is in the ventricles at the end of the diastole, at the end of the relaxation. So imagine the ventricle relaxing, filling up with blood from the atria, filling up a determined amount of blood. That blood is called end diastolic volume. The amount of blood in the ventricles at the end of the diastole, at the end of the relaxation. And the end systolic volume, which is the blood that is left in the ventricle after systole. Because when the ventricle contracts and pumps the blood, well, the blood goes to the aorta. But not all blood is ejected. 
one-third of the end diastolic volume is left in the ventricle. So when the ventricle contracts, it's not completely squeezed and send all the blood in and stays empty. A little bit of blood will remain, and that little bit of blood in the ventricle after contraction is known as end systolic volume which is one-third of the end diastolic. The end diastolic volume is the blood that the ventricle will send, but it will not send everything. One-third will remain after the contraction. And we'll, be, uh, we'll come back to this in the next part where we explain um, how this uh, has a relation with the blood pressure, the work of the heart, and congestive heart failure, and people that have high blood pressure, how this is affected and all that, or people that had myocardial infarctions and so. But before going to that part again, let's go over the electrical aspects of the heart. We've done the electrocardiogram lab already, it's just I'd add some things here. We know this first thing, the cardiac cells are connected by gap junctions, and the stimulus goes and travels cell to cell, the whole heart, it contracts as one single unit, that's called functional syncytium. And the atrial ventricle are separated electrically by a fibrous skeleton. The electrical activity of the heart means that the myocardial cells, they have an automatic nature of the heartbeat. They automatically make their own action potential and determine its own rhythm. Specialized myocardial cells like the SA node, known as the pacemaker, which we find it in the right atrium, AV node, Purkinje fibers are also secondary pacemakers. And all these specialized cells are going to determine the rhythm of the heart. <coughs> we see the graph of this system here. Sinoatrial node in yellow is located in the right atrium wall. AV node in the area between the atrium and the ventricles. And then followed by the bundle branches, Purkinje fibers, that make this signal reach both ventricles. Now, how exactly this works? These cells, specialized cells, SA node, AD node, but especially the cells of the SA node, sinoatrial node, has a specific feature called the pacemaker potential. And it's about that these cells they depolarize spontaneously. They depolarize spontaneously. Uh, between heartbeats, they will depolarize. They don't need any connection from a neuron to depolarize. They will depolarize by itself. Because there is a special type of sodium potassium channel that will be triggered by hyperpolarization.
And then the action potential is basically the same thing in the initial steps, sodium channels, and we have to add the presence of calcium channels in the cardiac muscle fiber, that's one of the differences, will open and it will trigger the action potential and therefore the contraction. Repolarization is based on opening of potassium channels, the same way as uh, the nervous system that we studied already. And we see that here. This is what happens in the cells of the pacemakers and you enter node. That's why they depolarize spontaneously. When they are in the repolarization phase, they will get hyperpolarized. Remember, hyperpolarization is when we get lower than the baseline. So they are getting hyperpolarized. And the hyperpolarization will be the stimulus for the opening of this particular type of channel called HCN channels, which is only present in the pacemaker cells, sinuatron node, AV node. And these cells will start depolarizing spontaneously by itself. These channels will open, and when they reach this point, which is a threshold, an action potential will be triggered. Calcium channels, sodium channels, they reach the peak, the uh, repolarization, potassium channels, they get hyperpolarized, and then again it starts depolarizing spontaneously until reaching the threshold, another action potential, and that's how these cells uh, work. And send action potentials that determine rate, a specific rate. That's why they're called pacemakers. And that is thanks to the presence of these special channels. So there's no need for a neuron to stimulate and, uh, the initial contraction or, or, or depolarization. Instead, they are going to, if they make action potentials, now that action potential will be spread to the rest of the myocardial cells. So these sinuatral node cells will depolarize spontaneously at a determined rate and the rate of a sinuatral node is between 60 to 100 times per minute, which is a normal heart rate range. Now, sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system, we said before, they regulate the cardiac function. And here is where they work. Remember, epinephrine and norepinephrine are neurotransmitters of the sympathetic nervous system. Well, the sympathetic nervous system is going to regulate this and it's going to make these channels to open up faster. And if they open faster, they will increase the rate of depolarization and the rate of action potentials. And therefore, the heart rate will be increased. And the other side, parasympathetic neurons, secreting acetylcholine, they will open potassium channels, and the potassium channels, they are repolarizing. So that will slow down the heart rate. That's how these sympathetic, parasympathetic work. 
at, the, at that level, the cells of the pacemaker's annual node regulate the heart rate. And what happens with the rest of the cells? The myocardial cells, the rest of the cells, they are also able to produce their own action potentials. But they are actually under the command of the sinusoidal node. That's what the sinusoidal node is called pacemaker. Because the rate of the sinusoidal node is going to determine the rate of contraction of the rest of the cells. The cardiomuscle cells in general, they have a resting potential of minus 85, minus 90 millivolts. And they are depolarized by action potentials coming from the SA node. So the SA node will send the stimulus to the rest of the myocardial cells. Now there is a difference in the action potential of the regular myocardial cell because here we have to consider the presence of calcium channels that will make the shape of the action potential a little different. And we see that better in the graph here. This is the shape of the action potential in the myocardial cell. Essentially, the steps are the same, but there are some differences. Initially, we see the resting membrane potential here. Depolarization starts when the sodium channels open, we know that. And there's a peak. But when reaching this peak, what comes after is repolarization. Potassium channels must open, and they do. But at the same time, calcium channels will open at this point. Calcium channels, these are positive, and they will come inside the cell. At the same time, potassium is coming out of the cell. So this exit of potassium is trying to repolarize, but more calcium is still getting inside. And that's what makes this plateau curve, making the actual potential longer than in a nervous cell or in a skeletal muscle fiber. And then finally, after approximately 200 milliseconds, then the line returns to resting membrane. This is the typical action potential of a myocardial cell, of a regular myocardial cell, not the pacemaker. Why is in this way? Because the contraction of the muscle, of the cardiac muscle fiber has to be different. This allows a longer refractory period. It protects the myocardial cells. Remember, the myocardial cells, they contract for a lifetime. They need to be well protected when they contract and relax. That's one of the reasons of the action potential having that shape. So how the impulses travel along this electrical system? When the action potential is produced by the sinusoidal node, it is pressed rapidly in both atria. Point A to one meter per second, that's the speed they have, what it has. Once it reaches the AV node, the transmission will slow down. It will be 0 0.03, 0 0.05 meters per second. And there's a little bit of delay 
between the atrial and ventricular contraction. And it has to be because the blood is supposed to come first from the atria, then go to the ventricle. The ventricle contracts first. When the ventricle contracts, the atria relaxes. When the atria relaxes, the ventricle, when the atria contracts, the ventricle relaxes. So it happens at different times. That's why it needs, there has to be a bit of delay. And that's why the stimulus gets lower, allowing that delay that allows contractions at different times. The difference of milliseconds, but it has to be uh, a little bit of delay. And then, bundle of his, bundle branches, finally the Purkinje fibers, and reaching the ventricle fibers. What is the importance of calcium? Well, the calcium, we said it enters the cell during repolarization. Without calcium, will help the sarcoplasmic reticulum and T-tubules to release calcium, because it's the same mechanism as the skeletal fiber. You know, the calcium is in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Well, the calcium entering the cell will help the calcium from the SR be released to start the contraction. Remember, calcium binding to troponin and all the process of actin and myosin will continue there. And this is what I was saying about the um, refractory period. The action potential has to be this long or long duration because it gives a, a longer refractory period. After the action potential comes the contraction in red and this long duration allows protection of the skeletal of the cardiac muscle fibers. Okay, questions to this point. <laughs>